This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Well, if you dialed up last week's program, and, and, and we certainly hope that you did, you no doubt noticed that we aired a program that originally aired 10 years previously. That was in conjunction with the uh, Duquesne University, Cyril Wecht Institute of Forensics and Law conference held to discuss, at that time, the 50th anniversary of the assassination of JFK. Well, they had a 60th anniversary conference this past week, and a lot of people that um, we're quite familiar with attended. Uh, yours truly was supposed to attend, but for reasons we won't go into, um, that just that did not come off. Nevertheless, we had a lot of uh, folks lined up to talk to us, and, and it turns out, well, we still do, because we were not able to close the circle and get them on uh, today's program, which is okay. This is a holiday show. Let's put this off, I think, for a week or two. We would like to take the time to wish everybody a happy Thanksgiving tomorrow. And here's a hint for all of you. Don't discuss politics. Well, that is, unless you're determined to make sure you don't get any Christmas presents to follow. We did note that the President Joe Biden, who still is the president, pardoned a couple of turkeys, um, I guess, yesterday. And in an odd juxtaposition of, of memory, I, I do recall President Kennedy doing that. It's become kind of an annual shtick they do at the White House. They bring in a couple of turkeys and the president pardons them. Mr. Mill likes to point out that one turkey that did not get pardoned this year by President Biden was Donald Trump. And sad to note, we'll have a little bit more to say about uh, <clears throat> the former president as we, as we go along here. What I remember, by the way, about JFK and his pardoning of the turkeys back in, it, it must have been 1962 when I was a lad, a small lad. What stuck in my mind for some reason was that the president was irritated at the reporters and the whole proceedings. And he was sort of snapping at them a little a little bit. At least that's what the reporters were hinting. And you know, and, and all the discussions have taken place over JFK, his presidency, and unfortunately what happened to him uh, 60 years ago. I don't recall anybody else bringing that one up. We're going to have to probe that one a little, a little deeper, I think. Now, I'm quite certain back in the day he actually did pardon the turkeys, as, as the presidents always do. But uh, more than that, I can't say. Of course, you know... With tech being what it is, uh, there's probably a clip on YouTube somewhere of that uh, of that press reportage of so many years back. Anyway, we have a lot of topics that we might cover today, and, and, and we're certainly going to cover some of them. But I think I'm going to start with some follow-up from a previous program. We did report to you that uh, there was a number of um, formulas out there for how to make a cricket thermometer. In other words, listen to the number of chirps made by a cricket, and from that derive the temperature. Well, Mr. Miller and I performed some experiments on this, and I'm here to report to you that it was a smashing failure. We were unable to find any way of converting cricket chirps into temperatures that, that held up or was consistent. Now, if you, dear listener, have succeeded at this, please drop us a line and inform us how you did it at info at radioparallax.com. You know, as always, we have a bunch of articles laid out before us, which we, we pick and choose from to discuss, some at length some pretty superficially. Since I'm not sure where to go next, I think we're going to do something we've done on many occasions when we were confronted with this, which was jump right into the good, the bad, and the ugly.
let us start by noting that according to The Week magazine, it was a good week a couple weeks back for political correctness, or maybe political correctness run amok, with the story that the Student Association at George Washington University, in our nation's capital, is seeking to change its name to the Student Government Association because the acronym SA could stand in their minds for sexual assault. The SA told GWU's Board of Trustees that its members were also concerned that their organization shares the same initials as the Sturm Mobteilung, the Nazis' SA, a paramilitary organization which aided the rise of Adolf Hitler. Now, for his part, Mr. Miller has a suggestion for the people at GWU. They may want to change it from SA, Student Association, to SJ, Student Jackasses. That might be a little bit strong, but really, I mean, you, you know, can you not find some acronym or, or series of initials in some language that someone's going to find offensive to? Well, I'm sure the answer to that's yes. And in a similar vein, we would note it was also a good week for political correctness, or maybe political correctness run amok, with this story. The American Ornithological Society is removing the names of all North American bird species that reference people and replacing them with monikers that describe their plumage and other characteristics. The move follows revelations that the namesakes of Townsend's warbler, Bachman's sparrow, and dozens of other birds were slaveholders, or they held racist views. Those names cause pain to people, said AOS President Colleen Handel, and are, quote, barriers to their participation in the world of birds, unquote. I don't know about this one either. I used to have a, uh, a Monterey pine that had a Swainson's hawk nest up in it. And, you know, I enjoyed watching those birds and coming in to feed the young and all that. And I have no idea about the racial views of Mr. Swainson. Didn't he invent the TV dinner? No, that was Swanson. Oh. And continuing on in this snarky mode, we would note there was also a good week for political correctness or maybe it, its successes with the news that a group of U.S. astronomers is calling for the large and small Magellanic clouds to be renamed, citing Magellan's violent colonialist legacy. Professor Mia de los Reyes of Amherst College says the Portuguese explorer was a colonizer, a slaver, and a murderer who slaughtered indigenous people during his circumnavigation of the globe. Well, he had to make some corrections right away in this. Magellan did not complete his circumnavigation of the globe, and although he may have uh, started a needless war with the indigenous peoples in the Philippines, he paid for it with his life. Good old Lapu-Lapu. De Los Reyes added, there are perfectly good indigenous names for the LMC and SMC dwarf galaxies that predate Magellan by thousands of years. Anyway, I suppose there are, but I, I hope they don't proceed with this bit of knuckleheadedness. Now, we, we, we can't confirm this, but, you know, speaking on behalf of the uh, U.S. astronomers who are politically correct, we do note that Magellan reportedly did have a very bad habit of leaving the toilet seat up. At any rate, we would move along and note that it was a bad week recently for yachting. After the news that a pod of orcas both rammed and sank a yacht in the Straits of Gibraltar, 
This is, by the way, the fourth boat to be sunk off the Iberian Peninsula by the animals in the past two years. Experts are saying that the boat's rudders are viewed as playthings by fun-seeking young orcas, which for my money does not quite explain the sinking of the boat. We'd also note that it was a bad week recently for fast food, after news surfaced that a firefighter in Washington, D.C. was fired for stopping to grab a meal at Chick-fil-A while responding to an emergency call for a woman suffering chest pains. In his defense, the now ex-firefighter said he spent literally a few minutes tops at the restaurant. And it was an ugly week recently for uh, teachers, I think, everywhere, or at least in Georgia, with the news that Georgia's Republican Lieutenant Governor, Burt Jones, wants to reward the teachers of his state who undergo firearms training with a $10,000 annual stipend. Evidently, three Georgia counties, Lawrence, Gordon, and Fannin, currently allow armed teachers. And Jones says the threat of school shootings justifies the proposed legislation. Visiting an elementary school last week, Jones said it was sad the state would need to go to these lengths to protect our children. But it's just where we are. Apparently, when he referred to go to these lengths, he did not have any consideration of any efforts at gun control. Now, personally, I have a hard time visualizing how it is that, you know, if an AR-15 armed nut shows up at the school, that he's going to be taken down by Miss Overacker in the home ex class that whips out her Beretta and drops him. But on the flip side, I'd never been elected lieutenant governor of Georgia either. And finally, here's an item that we're just not sure whether it's good or it's bad, but here's the story. Apparently, Sweden has launched a public relations campaign to stop tourists from mistaking it for Switzerland. Now, I think in kindness, this article does not, does not refer to American tourists mistaking Sweden for Switzerland. But I do have a strong feeling that people that come from European nations don't often make this mistake. I got to give the Swedes credit. They've come up with a video ad that notes one way to tell the two European nations apart was Switzerland has yodeling, while Sweden has silence and lack of yodeling. Now, we did mention some weeks back that we're going to try and reach out to the people at the B612 Society over in Mill Valley. Uh, President Danica will hopefully come on this program to talk about uh, what they do so well, which is promote efforts to find asteroids that might be a threat to planet Earth and do what we can to um, perhaps move them if we have enough time to do so. Uh, you no doubt saw in the headlines that scientists are very excited that they got a piece of asteroid back. This is courtesy of the OSIRIS-REx mission, which went out to the asteroid Bennu, a very small asteroid, but one that comes a little bit closer to Earth than comfort. And uh, we're really keen to talk about that, but we don't have any more data to report, so we're going to have to postpone that till December or January. But in the meantime... We were grabbed by the recent headline that notes Stanford professor hunts for alien life. No, and in this case, we're not referring to Harvard astronomer uh, Avi Loeb, who dragged magnets uh, on the floor of the Pacific Ocean and claimed that he'd found bits of matter that he thought came from outside the solar system. Well, 
the loosely wrapped professor has now been uh, trumped by others who have taken a look at these samples and said, no, no, these are not pieces of matter from outside the solar system. They apparently are pieces of industrial waste. From inside the solar system? <laughs> from very much inside the solar system, as far as we can tell. But I was grabbed by another headline, uh, not referring to a hard professor, but a Stanford professor who is reportedly hunting for alien life. Here's the piece by Lisa Krieger from the East Bay News. On a cold December night in 1977 in Council Bluffs, Iowa, a mysterious hovering object was reported to be flying overhead. Then a luminous hot molten rock fell to earth. What was it? Where did it come from? No one knows. But Stanford University immunologist Gary Nolan suggests one possible theory. It was a discarded part of a UAP, or Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon, the formal government name for objects previously called UFOs. Notes the piece. Undaunted by the risk of professional stigma, the biotech entrepreneur, boy, we sure need more of those guys, is urging the creation of a stardust repository where this and other pieces of mysterious materials of unknown origin would be stored for analysis. At a first-of-its-kind symposium last week at Stanford, Nolan unveiled plans to bring scientific rigor to a realm that has long been the home to kooks and wackos. Wait, you mean to tell me that kooks and wackos can't demonstrate scientific rigor? You know, in addition, we, we, we have no reason to label Gary Nolan a kook or wacko, but we're also pretty darn sure we're not going to go visit a stardust repository anytime soon to see if we can find some hubcaps that fell off a flying saucer. Yes, Mr. Miller is expressing open skepticism that uh, alien life forms may have traveled all the way from, say, Arcturus, 80 light years away, and then once they got here to Earth, you know, dropped a chunk of their vehicle off onto the ground. Might have been a rough flight. <laughs> but on the other hand, I, I can think of a time or two when the lug nuts weren't tightened down enough on the, on the wheel and there was quite a bit of shimmy. So I, I don't know. Maybe. In a not related but equally oddball story about space uh, samples, I, I guess you might say, uh, there's an article in New Scientist magazine from a Paul Marx, who's described as a technology, aviation, and space flight journalist based in London, who's making the case that we must, must not return samples from Mars. Because he says there is a non-zero risk that it could deliver to Earth extraterrestrial organisms that microbiologists simply don't understand or know how to combat or even contain. And if they're pathogenic, there's a risk that spilling them in a breakup of a reentry vehicle or a leak from a lab could lead to an ecosystem collapse or a contagion. Well, yes, that, that is possible. It's also why back in the 1960s when astronauts returned from the surface of the moon, they were put in quarantine for a week or so because it was pointed out that, well, what if there's organisms on the moon we don't know how to deal with? And yes, we, we could cite how in War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells, the Martians were taken down by microorganisms here on Earth. But the truth of the matter is, if something can survive on the surface of Mars, well, it's just not likely to be the next common cold. Wouldn't we be better off taking a look at things like Asian carp and the Great Lakes or, or pythons being let loose in the Everglades and think this is a sort of biological controls we should be instituting rather than worrying about Martian organisms? Well, 
We think so here at Radio Parallax. Anyway, on a lighter note, since we're up in space right now, I'd like to cite another piece that came from New Scientist. It was titled Seven Wonders of the Milky Way. It's from the uh, October 21st issue of the magazine. And um, rather than go through all seven, I'm going to, I think, focus on the one I thought was the most curious, which was The Wonder of Proxima Centauri B. The piece by Matthew Bothwell notes that uh, at this point in time, we've discovered more than 5,000 exoplanets out there, which is quite something, considering that, you know, scarcely a generation ago, we didn't know that there were any planets orbiting anywhere else around any other stars, and now we know of at least 5,000. But uh, there are hundreds of billions more worlds that are still out there to be found. Uh, It said an average, perhaps, of roughly one per star in the Milky Way. The piece states that if we could visit any of these, we would surely want to choose an exoplanet that has a good chance of harboring life. The trouble is we don't know whether life can emerge in conditions beyond those on Earth, nor the spectrum of environments that can arise when planetary systems form. So the safest bet is to look for a planet that looks something like our own. But over the past few years, the James Webb Space Telescope has found tantalizing signs of carbon dioxide, methane, and water vapor in far-off exoplanet atmospheres. But it's a planet much closer to home that the author chooses to plump for, Proxima Centauri b, which orbits, in fact, the closest star to our own star, the Sun. And at this point, we don't know what the conditions are like on the surface of the world. Its its diminutive parent star is a red dwarf. It has a mass only one-eighth that of the Sun and is about a thousand times dimmer. But uh, this is fortunate, it's said, because a sun-like star would roast this closely orbiting planet to a crisp. But it's possible that Proxima Centauri b has adequate conditions for life. Its natural equilibrium temperature has been calculated as negative 39 Celsius based on the energy output of its sun. But it's said if it has the right kind of atmosphere, a greenhouse effect would raise this to something friendlier to life. If you're keeping score... Earth's equilibrium temperature is about negative 20 degrees Celsius. And as you may have noticed, we are perfectly habitable as a planet. And that's thanks to the gases that blanket us. Now, there's a couple of problems with Proxima Centauri b harboring life. Uh, it's tidally locked. In other words, one side of it faces its, uh, its star and the other side is uh, perpetually in darkness. But it's been pointed out that, you know, in the area along the, uh, the Terminator, there could be winds that blow from hot to cold, and it might be uh, reasonably cozy. But also working against us is the fact that Proxima Centauri b is a red dwarf known as a flare star, which means every so often, all hell breaks loose. And it puts out uh, bursts of energy and particles that would probably fry anything on the surface. We don't know enough about it at this point, but study goes on and... And when we have more data, we'll, we'll report it. Now, it is possible, of course, that if we are visited by aliens from this planet and, and something falls off the spaceship, we may, we may get a leg up on finding out what's, what's going on out there. All right, we need to talk about gambling. Mr. Miller, do you have some appropriate music? Yeah, let's start by talking about uh, Las Vegas, the city that now uh, 
owns the Oakland Raiders, <laughs> now renamed the Las Vegas Raiders. You got to hand it to uh, the Davis family, which has screwed Alameda County and the city of Oakland and all of the fans of the Raiders, not once but twice. First moving to Los Angeles, then deciding they didn't like the uh, L.A. Coliseum to play in, so they came back, got a really favorable deal, which we talked about uh, at great length. And, and wouldn't you know it, Las Vegas has done it again to Oakland. The Oakland A's are now set to leave Oakland, where they've played since the 1960s, and also relocate down in Sin City. Now, as recently as a couple days ago, there were news items out there about how they were filing a suit in, in the state of Nevada to try and stop stadium public funding in an effort to uh, make it less attractive for the A's to move. But having witnessed how the sports owners uh, are in, get in cahoots with political leaders to um, thwart the interest of the public, I didn't think that was going to get very far, and I'm, I'm sure it's not going to. We spent a lot of time on this program talking about uh, the shenanigans surrounding the um, Sacramento Kings. And we're not going to revisit that today. But suffice it to say that owners have a way of getting what they want. I believe it was Ronald Reagan who once referred to politicians as the second oldest profession, noting that it had a lot in common with the first recognized profession out there, which of course would be prostitution. Anyway, in a, slightly, in a related story, we, we commented a couple years back about the suspicion we had on some of the playoff games in the National Football League and how they just seemed suspiciously Hollywoody in, in how the game evolved. And how you can fix a game, well, that, that's, that's quite a story. Um, I was watching the Ken Burns baseball series recently with uh, my girlfriend who'd never seen it. I was very impressed about uh, the 1919 Chicago White Sox story. And in case you weren't aware of it, uh, dear listener, a gambler, Arnold Rothstein, fixed the World Series back in 1919. After watching some of the shenanigans in the NFL of late, I, I I just have some suspicions about what's going on. Case in point, a friend of mine who's a dad was an FBI agent whose one of his specific tasks was to befriend the people in sports in his home city to make sure that there was not some monkey business going on with gamblers fixing games. When I floated the idea to him, and he is quite an NFL fan, I floated the idea to him some time back about eh, some of these, these outcomes just don't smell right. At first he was poo-pooing it, but now he calls me and says, oh, wow. This first came about because not this weekend, but last weekend in the NFL, five, no less than five games were decided on the last play, which secured the victory for one team by kicking a field goal. In all of the pro football weekends or since the founding of the NFL, there was, the record was three such games decided on the last play. Last Sunday, they had five now, as it turned out, my friend is a Buffalo Bills fan, and that night the Bills were playing on Monday Night Football, and it was like, well, let's just see what happens here. And when you know it, that game was decided on a field goal on the very last play, meaning that on that weekend, they doubled the previous record. Such things can happen by chance. It's true. 
But when you consider the money that's now being poured into sports betting, you just have to scratch your head. As reported on this program last year, the New York Times noted that the um, a piece by Eric Lipton and Kenneth Vogel, that the U.S. has been suckered into going all in on sports betting. They noted that less than five years previous, betting on sports in the U.S. was prohibited under federal law, except in Nevada casinos and a smattering of other venues like Indian casinos, etc. But in 2018, the Supreme Court ruled that a federal prohibition was unconstitutional. But reversing the longstanding antipathy of sports leagues toward gambling and the concerns of state lawmakers about addiction and corruption required bare-knuckled lobbying, it is said, by gambling companies and their allies. In addition to doling out millions to lawmakers' campaigns, the gambling industry disseminated data how much tax revenue states could expect to receive. In many cases, they were so persuasive that states granted tax exemptions on promotional giveaways which is a break that doesn't just relinquish tax dollars, but also encourages a type of marketing that fuels addiction, noted the Times. Well, you may have voted a couple years back on Proposition 27. I think there were two props on the ballot at that time about um, making sports gambling even more pervasive in the state of California. By the way, I believe that that that, um, ballot measure in 2022 set the record for expenditures the gambling interest spent about $100 for every yes vote on the measure. Of course, they only got 17% of the vote as a yes, so I guess that explains uh, the high cost. But believe you me, the gambling interests are not done. And this I can't resist quoting from a piece in the East Bay Times from, uh, from last week about this matter. article by John Wolfwick starts in the following manner. One is a jet-setting, high-stakes poker player with a taste for fancy resorts, drinks, and cars. Another is a blockchain and cryptocurrency entrepreneur. They've teamed up for an online gambling venture in Southern California that made millions. Now they're betting they can do it again. But first, they'll have to sell skeptical tribal leaders and the Golden State's wary voters who rejected two sports betting measures last year on a plan to legalize sports books what would become the largest U.S. market. Well, of course, you know, who wouldn't want to trust a high-stakes poker player with a taste for fancy resorts, drinks, and cars, or also a blockchain and cryptocurrency entrepreneur? But apparently they ran into some problems when they tried to get the California tribes on board, make sports betting more widely available. The California Nation's Indian Gaming Association, representing 52 tribes, said in an announcement uh, last week that after meeting online with Casey Thompson and Reeve Collins, its members voted to oppose two proposed sports wagering initiatives filed with the California Attorney General's Office last October. Now, whether that's going to stop this from appearing on the ballot next year, we don't know, but we're going to keep, uh, keep our eyes on it and see what happens. Now, there's some, quite a few articles we have on this. We don't have time to go into much. Uh, an article in New Yorker noted that Americans spend more on lottery tickets every year than on cigarettes, coffee, or smartphones. At least that's according to uh, someone who studied the matter. And in a piece in the Week magazine titled The Last Word from several years back, it, it was noted that lotteries depend on the poor and gambling addicts for most of their revenues. But 44 states still actively promote them as the fastest way to realize the American dream which is very sad. And in a briefing section from the week dating uh, last May, uh, titled The Casino on the Couch, 
It was noted that legalization of sports betting is generating billions in revenue and ruining lots of lives. The piece noted that last year, Americans placed $93 billion in gaming bets, according to the trade publication Sports Handle. And at that point in time, 33 states had now legalized sports betting and four were soon to do so, which they, I'm sure, did. To the question, do pro sports leagues support this? The answer came back for a century. Major sports leagues vehemently oppose legal gambling, casting as a threat to the sport's integrity. One of the biggest scandals in sports history was the 1919 Black Sox scandal, in which eight members of the Chicago White Sox were accused of throwing the World Series in return for payments. Well, they weren't just accused, they actually did it. The piece notes that Major League Baseball Commissioner Bud Selig, as recently as 2012, said gambling is evil, creates doubt, and destroys your sport. But after the Supreme Court ruling, pro leagues did not want to miss out on the tsunami of money going to private gambling companies and tax money going to states, and now they fully embrace sports betting. Yikes. Anyway, you need to take a short break. Let's do so. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. And you can bet we'll be back. Be back. 